This is episode number 19 with Alan Mandel. Coming up. And that, that was the moment I think I felt that I, I wanted to be able to do that too. And then I went totally blank. I couldn't remember anything. And finally, I remembered my exit line. And I went flying off like Superman with my cape flying behind me. As I say, I, I slept in the cot. And then when people put food in the refrigerator, I ate. If they didn't put food there, I didn't eat. I tell young actors, don't worry about becoming buddy-buddy with the other actors. Find out who's doing the writing. It's not just the actors who get most of the praise. It's all these other artists. They are really artists. Hey there, my name is Nathan Agin, and this is The Working Actor's Journey, bringing you in-depth conversations with actors that have been working professionally for decades. Hope you're doing well out there. We are almost at the end of Season 2, and if you're just joining us, we have a number of fantastic episodes where working actors share where they've been, how they do it, and what they've learned along the way. Actors who have been putting in the work day in, day out, and who have certainly had their ups and downs like everyone else. These conversations are meant to inspire and reassure you on your journey— that you're not alone, you're not crazy, and though the road may be long and challenging, there are rewards ahead. And I really want to help you as an actor out there. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss anything ahead, and visit the website workingactorsjourney.com where you can get a copy of the guide 12 Top Acting Tips from Season 1. These are some of the best ideas taken from all the episodes compiled in one place, and it's waiting for you. There's also a link in the episode description. Today on the show is Alan Mandel, an actor and director, and he's also been a general manager of multiple theaters. He's considered one of the leading interpreters of Samuel Beckett's work, and he even collaborated directly with the playwright several times. Very cool stuff. His career has spanned over seven decades, which is just unbelievable, and has taken him all over the globe. We could have easily called this episode a life in the theater, because that's truly what Alan has done. And as a bonus, he's the second nonagenarian on the show. Along with episode 17's Robert Goldsby, they're both still doing well in their 90s. Plus, Alan continues to work from time to time, which is just awesome. Now, I first became aware of Alan's work when he played the servant Fears in a production of The Cherry Orchard in Los Angeles. But it was when he soon after did the play Trying, directed by Cameron Watson and with Rebecca Mozo, that I was just blown away by his work. We talk a bit about that show as it absolutely left an impression on me. Because of Alan's long history of work, his collaborations with Samuel Beckett, teaching acting to prisoners, and so much more, I am truly honored that he could be a part of this podcast. So in today's episode, Alan and I cover growing up in Canada during the Depression, doing radio drama and theater in Toronto, 
how he got involved with the actor's workshop through volunteer office work, his initial reaction and confusion when he first read Waiting for Gatto, teaching acting classes and helping out with the San Quentin drama workshop, being involved in the early days of Hedvig and the Angry Inch, what success has meant to him, and mentoring young actors in the theater, plus a whole lot more. And Alan also shares some direct acting notes from Samuel Beckett himself on Waiting for Gatto, so don't miss that. Having great mentors and access to outstanding teachers can make the difference in your career. And that's what this show is hoping to do, to connect you with actors that could change your life and make your acting journey easier and more satisfying. And if you'd like to get exclusive access to additional episodes, bonus content, and items that are available nowhere else, I invite you to become a premium member of the Working Actors Journey, starting at just $2 per month at workingactorsjourney.com slash premium. Just to give you an idea of benefits, I recently sent out an exclusive bonus episode with Robert Pine from episode number one. Members learned more about what he looks for in a script, and also how the current state of business, including with services like Netflix, is affecting the middle-class performer. More great insights into the life of a working actor. And they also got to know before anyone else who today's guest was. So if those kinds of insider scoops and bonus content are up your alley, become a premium member. Again, just $2 per month to get started. Plus, by joining, you're ensuring that this show continues. Consider this the most inexpensive and possibly most valuable acting class you'll ever take. Join now at workingactorsjourney.com slash premium or see the show notes and episode description for a link. Now here's a bit more about Alan's journey. Born in Toronto, Ontario, he was involved with all kinds of roles in radio and theater in Canada. Through a series of fortunate events, he became part of the Actors Workshop in the 50s in San Francisco, which really helped launch his career in the U.S. and introduced him to the works of and person Samuel Beckett. He was co-founder of the San Quentin Drama Workshop at the prison with the inmates. He was general manager for both the Actors Workshop and the repertory company of Lincoln Center, working with dozens of fantastic actors and directors over the years, including several times with Philip Bosco, whom we paid tribute to earlier this season. Showing no signs of slowing down in his 80s, Alan acted in Pinter's The Price, Beckett's Waiting for Gatto, and then directed and acted in Beckett's Endgame, all at the Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles. He was the recipient of L.A. Weekly's first Lifetime Achievement Award. He has won four L.A. Ovation Awards for trying, Pinter's The Price and No Man's Land, and Beckett's Waiting for Gatto, and he was nominated for directing Endgame. He also won the L.A. Drama Critics Circle Award for his performances in Trying and Waiting for Gatto. 
He has over 30 film and TV credits over the last 45 years, including John Cameron Mitchell's films Hedvig and the Angry Inch and Short Bus, and appearing in the Coen Brothers film A Serious Man. He was even in the 2019 Netflix film Velvet Buzzsaw with Jake Gyllenhaal as the painter whose work fuels the story. Just fantastic to see he's still working in his 90s. Alan has had truly a remarkable career, and it's wonderful to see that he continues to stay involved with theater and acting, something we can all hope for after so many decades. Are you looking for more info from industry insiders and great teachers about being an actor? And do you want this as something you can listen to on the go? Well, you're in luck. As a listener of the Working Actors Journey podcast, Audible is offering you a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Whether it's one hour or 15 hours, it doesn't matter. Whatever you want, that first item is totally free. To download your audiobook today, go to workingactorsjourney.com slash audible. Here are a few recommendations for your acting journey. The Actor's Life by Jenna Fisher from The Office, read by the author and others, including our guest, Reed Burney. Secrets of Screen Acting by Patrick Tucker, a TV and film director, read by David Lawrence the Seventeenth. Respect for Acting by Uta Hagen, read by Angel Masters. Get one of these or anything else at workingactorsjourney.com slash audible. It was really fascinating to hear all about Alan's career. His story is a combination of being in the right place at the right time and being willing to do whatever it took to make theater happen, which is such a great attitude. Make sure you stick around for Alan's thoughts on success and working with all the artists in the theater. It's some of the best parts of our talk. So here we go with episode number 19. Please enjoy my chat with Alan Mandel. When you were growing up, the U.S. was certainly going through the Depression in the 30s. And I was curious what your experience of your early years in Canada was. It was similar. I mean, the Depression... It was a very difficult time for my mother and father. They had a restaurant in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And it was during the Depression. I mean, that went bust. Mm. So uh, it was a restaurant confectionery store. And I remember we, I, well, I was awfully young. I was like 1932. Thereabouts, I was four or five mm-hmm. when all of that happened. And uh, we moved to a, uh, a rental house not far from where the, the restaurants were, which was on Gerard Street. Okay. And I, re- I remember we used to get something from the Toronto Star. They would send these boxes of gifts at Christmas. And so when we went to school, all the kids who didn't have any money we all wore the same clothes that were given to us by the Toronto Star 
a fund that they had mm-hmm. to help people who were going through difficult times during the Depression. Got it, got it. And, you know, I know you got involved in theater in, in different ways while you were in Toronto, and I was curious, what were, yeah. what were you looking for that you feel like you found in the theater as a kid? I don't know how young I was. I remember watching a play at the school that I went to, mm-hmm. which was Hester Howe was the school, an elementary school. And there was a play, as I watched it, I was deeply moved by the fact that one of the characters, I remember, had burst into tears. And uh, I was so impressed by the fact that someone on stage could have that kind of an effect on me mm. or on anyone. And that that was the moment I think I felt that I, I wanted to be able to do that too. Mm. That kind of an effect on an audience, a group of people. Right. That's uh, very much like Hamlet's moment with the player and uh, who's talking about Hecuba, that he has this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Who is Hecuba? What is she? Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Well, it was it was that moment that really moved me. And I think I must have been, as I say, I was either four or five. Wow. At the time. And it had a lasting effect. Right. And so later on, about a year or two after that, there there were plays regularly at the school. And my older brother had been in plays. And one of the plays they were doing, one of the students had dropped out. I think he was arrested by the police. Actually. Hmm. They were part of a mafia family. Oh, okay. Wow. So because my brother was very good at acting, they thought, well, maybe I must be too. So they gave me the role in the play. Hmm. And I don't remember what play that was, but I do remember that the next one, I was very successful in that one. And so the next one was Oliver Twist, in which I played Oliver Twist. Hmm. Okay. Did you feel like in that show you started to have that connection with the audience that, that you had seen a couple of years prior? Yes, that I had seen and felt. You're right, exactly. I know eventually it was a, a trip where you visited your sister uh, in San Francisco that really kind of got things going for you for in the theater in the U.S. But I'm curious, you know, you had been involved in the theater up to that point in Canada. and Oh, yeah. So did you have any ideas or, or imaginings of what your life was going to be like had you stayed in Toronto? Did you have plans or, or goals of what to do there? Well, by the time I went to San Francisco, it was, it was after a, a phone conversation with my sister, uh, I was exhausted from uh, going to school, working at a job after school, and then participating in a company that was, it was called Theater 49, which was in 1949. Oh, okay. Before that, it was the Toronto Civic Theater. Uh, I had been doing a lot of radio drama. Actually, there was a children's theater of the air in which I performed fairly regularly a radio station in Toronto called CKEY. And the uh, the newscaster on that was uh, 
Lorne Green. Oh, okay, the actor, yeah. Yeah. So he was a newscaster then before he mm-hmm. moved down to the States uh, to become this actor in, I've forgotten the series. Oh, uh, Bonanza, I believe it was. Bonanza, yes. And I didn't watch a lot of television then. But I was uh, performing mm-hmm. with the Toronto Civic Theater. And uh, the director of that was a man named Joe Jolly, who had studied with people in New York, with people who were connected, I think, to the actor's studio. The teacher that he worked with, I think her name was Mary Tarsai. Hmm. She was apparently a very prominent teacher who taught Joe Jolly. And uh, I had some friends who were working in the Toronto Civic Theater. And when one of their actors dropped out uh, before they were to perform, they called me and said, would I please take over this part of a Roman centurion in Journey to Jerusalem, Hmm. Maxwell Anderson play. And so I said, I agreed to do it. And I, I worked with Mr. Jolly. I did not know the other actors. I think one or two I had met you know, doing radio work. Sure. And so uh, the opening night, I was dressed in a, a Roman centurion outfit with the, the boots and the the cape right, and everything. I was tall and quite thin and looked anything but <laughs> like a centurion. And so I remember going on stage in a packed house at some school auditorium. And uh, I was started with all of these people on stage. I had never, we had never done this, you know. Mm-hmm. I remembered my opening line was, a female devil take these rocks. They've cut a strap in two. And then I went totally blank. <laughs> I couldn't remember anything. And we, there was a silence on stage, which seemed to go on forever. Of course, yeah. And the other... The other actors began ad-libbing, and finally, I remembered my exit line, which was pages later, and my exit line was, I'll see you in Tiberius, and I went flying off like Superman with my cape flying behind me, Wow! off into the wings, down a long corridor, where all the other actors parted as I went through, (laughs) and... uh, I, I began changing my costume and packing up my makeup kit and everything. And the director came down and said, what are you doing? I said, I'm leaving. I can't, I can't go through with this. Mm-hmm. This is horrible. And he said, no, 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 you can't. you're in the second act. He said, you just stand behind the throne and say the lines. And we went over the lines and that's how I got through it. Wow. And I remember afterwards, People were coming backstage, thank people. And uh, this one woman who everyone seemed to know sort of bumped into me and she said, my, you have a big voice. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was ready to die. <laughs> I never forgot that. And the fact that I continued in the theater with that company, which later became Theater 49 in mm-hmm. 1949, I don't know, says something about the fact that that's what I was meant to do. Right. 
Well, and, you know, it's so interesting because it sounds like you were just involved doing a lot of theater and, and acting, but not necessarily a formal training program like a lot of actors do. Yeah. And so I'm curious, you know, when you eventually moved to the U.S. and you, you started working with Jules Irving and Herbert Blau, right. who later became the CalArts founding dean of theater, were they the ones who taught you a method of how to work and act? Were, were they your, your training program? Or, or where do you feel that came from? The training I got was from Joe Jolly. Okay. Who had had that training, which was a Stanislavski a method. And so I studied with him for about a year, and uh, I was appointed the artistic director of the company. Mm. And so I directed one or two plays, and I acted in several. Okay. So that's really where I got my training there, and in radio drama. Right. The woman who ran the company uh, on radio, there were two people involved. One was... Marjorie Purvey, and uh, she was also a teacher and director and an actress herself. And uh, Howard Milsom, who was another actor-teacher, they taught radio drama, which was the big thing then. Right, of course. The CBC had a radio drama, and eventually the first TV dramas were done at the CBC, I was in one of those, mm-hmm. one of the very first television dramas. So I was doing that. I was running the theater, Theater 49, and working at a job to earn a living. Right. And so when my sister, who had moved to San Francisco to get away from their first, she and her husband, uh, their first child had died at the Toronto Sick Children's Hospital mm-hmm. from a uh, virus oh, that okay. happened at the hospital, and a number of infants died. And uh, her their first child was one, and she just wanted to get away from Toronto, period. So she, they had moved, she and her husband had moved to San Francisco, where he had an uncle and the aunt who had a uh, automotive repair business, which is what he did. Okay. So they were in San Francisco, and uh, at one phone call, where I was just exhausted from everything I was doing. Right. You know, and working at a full time job and running a theater company and acting and radio and television. She said, Why don't you come down here for a rest? It was in the middle of winter, mm. the end of November, I guess. So I took the train. I remember taking the train to Chicago and then from Chicago to Oakland. And then you got the ferry boat in Oakland, took you across to San Francisco. And uh, my my kids were funny. You know, they were older when I remember telling them, they said, why didn't you take a jet, for God's sake? (laughs) Faster, and I said, "Well, they didn't have them." Right. (laughs) What do you mean? They always had jets, right? That's what the young kids thought. Right. But they didn't have them. So, for me, even taking a a flight which was too expensive, Mm -hmm. it didn't go nonstop from Toronto to San Francisco. Of course, right. So I took the train, which was like 
four days and three nights. I can't remember. It's a long trip. Right. Yes. Yeah. But uh, I mean, I I enjoyed it when we got to San Francisco. And I remember getting on the ferry boat in Oakland to take me over to San Francisco. And I'd left Toronto. It was snowing and blowing. It was freezing. And here it was, the sunny, beautiful day. San Francisco was just gleaming, glittering like a jewel. You know. Right. Uh, as, as we got, and I thought, my God, how long has this been going on? <laughs> uh, <laughs> what am I doing in Toronto in this? Just, so when, when I was there at, at their house, and they drove me all around the city, and which I found just very exciting, dazzling place, so different mm-hmm. than Toronto. And uh, after about two or three days of sightseeing, I, I said, you know, is there some place they have a theater maybe where you can work on scenes? I just, I felt I, I was missing, mm-hmm. you know, not doing anything. And so my sister said, well, there's a place called a workshop for actors. I said, oh, well, well, maybe you can take me there. So they did. We drove down, and it was a, a reconverted garage. Elgin Street, I think was the name of the street. Mm-hmm. It was the actor's workshop. Okay. And so I said, well, oh, this is fine. I said, you can leave me here. If if I need you, I'll go out to a payphone and call you, and you come and get me, or I'll take a streetcar back home to your place. So I, I went in, and there was didn't seem to be anybody there. And I, I walked around the office area shouting, you know, anybody home? Mm-hmm. No answer. I walked through the place, and, and there was a theater there, and I, a small theater uh, inside this reconverted garage. And the phone was ringing in the office, and... Uh, I thought, isn't that odd? There's no one here to answer the phone. Well, I picked it up and said, hello. <laughs> and they said, oh, is this the actor's workshop? And I said, yes, yes, it is. And they said, well, we, we'd like to make reservations for uh, the Crucible. And I said, well, the person who takes the reservations isn't here. But if you leave me your name and number, I'll have them call you as soon as someone turns up. Right. I said, fine. So I found a piece of paper and wrote that down. But the desk was a mess. So I began organizing the desk, which is what I would do in Toronto, you know, working in an office. And so uh, I worked at an import-export firm, and I had all sorts of jobs. So I, I began organizing the desk, and then the phone would ring again, and I would pick it up and say hello, and I would take their name and phone numbers, so a nice uh, sheet of paper I found where I could record all of this stuff. And uh, eventually I began, when the phone rang, I would say, hello, Actors Workshop. And I would write down their information. And then eventually someone came by and said, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Are you on the list of uh, volunteers? And I said, no, I just happened to, come by and they said, oh, well, you have a list here you've made. Yes. These are people who are calling want to know about the crucible. And she said, let me show you. So she took me in and showed me the, the uh, theater and the seating arrangement and uh, 
there was a book that had reservations on it. She said, so you can do this. She said, I'd love to stay, but she said, I've, I've got something else to do. And the person who's supposed to be coming to take over the phones uh, can't make it. So why don't you just stay here and do it? And I'll come get back to you later. And so I sat at the desk and began taking reservations for the crucible. Wow. <laughs> so I, I, I know how many hours I was there. Right. No one turned up until much later that night. There was apparently an, an understudy rehearsal. Oh, wow. For the crucible, which I then watched. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't met uh, Jewel Serving or Herb Blau by then. They were teaching full time at San Francisco State College. Okay. So they didn't have time to spend there during the day. So they'd set up this volunteer thing and they managed. I mean, Jules was more of the theater manager, uh, although he was an actor and director, whereas Herb Blau was a director and a teacher, you know, mm -hmm. of fine literature. Eventually, I, I met them at a rehearsal. I began going to the understudy rehearsals. And, and then I ushered on the weekends when they did the play. Okay. And so uh, I got to meet some of the other people there. And uh, when someone in the cast dropped out, they asked me if I would understudy. And I said, yes, I certainly would. And so I did. Anyhow, this uh, one week or 10 day visit of mine turned into about nine months. That's pretty amazing, yeah. They kept saying, you can't leave. You, know, you, you mustn't leave. Hmm. You know, we need you here. And so the theater moved to Folsom Street mm -hmm. from this garage and where we were had rehearsals and offices and were beginning to perform at the Marines Memorial Theater downtown. And um, there was a, a little house next to the Folsom Street rehearsal area where we had the office. So I became the general manager of the office end of the theater. And I, and I lived in that little house behind the office. There was a cot and a chair and a refrigerator. Hmm. And that's where I, I lived for quite a few months. Wow. Until I realized I'd been there for about nine months. It was time I didn't have papers that allowed me to function. You know, I wasn't allowed, shouldn't have been working at all. Sure. So I said, look, I have to go back to Toronto to get my papers, and then I'll come back. And they were concerned about my leaving at all. Hmm. And they wanted to know if there was any way they could help you know, expedite <laughs> my return. And I said, no, I would go back, which I did. And I got a job where I could make enough money so that I could show that I was not dependent on the state mm -hmm. when I came back. I had to show that you could function and you wouldn't need assistance. Sure. Wouldn't cost the U.S. government any money right. if I was there. And now, I was curious, you had done so much theater, acting and directing in Canada, and then... You know, it did sound like you were getting somewhat involved in the theater with the Actors Workshop, but you were also primarily doing a lot of, um, you know, managing or administrative work as well. And I'm curious, were you just an extremely patient person? Was it just enough for you to be involved any way you could and you were fine even just managing or, or doing administrative things? I wanted to be in the theater 
And this seemed like a theater that really appealed to me. So, as I say, I, I slept in the cot for, I don't know, how, how many years, <laughs> you know. And then when people put food in the refrigerator, I ate. If they didn't put food there, I didn't eat. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I wasn't paid very much since I was handling the books. I knew how much money there was, right. and there wasn't very much. There was a very small board of directors. Eventually, that would change. And um, we were working at the Marines Memorial Theater, and then there was a film theater that had gone dark down the street, which we built. And we, we turned into a stage theater called the Encore Theater. Mm -hmm. So we, it was the second theater. So I was doing all the books, uh, managing the theater, ushering, selling tickets in the box office, selling subscriptions. I did whatever you had to do to make a theater work. Right. And uh, I would answer all the mail with whatever title was appropriate, depending on who we were writing to. Oh, okay. So Herb Lau would say, oh, yes, send a letter to this person saying, you know, uh, we appreciate your interest in the theater and if you'd like to contribute and so on. So I would do that. And then when people would apply, as the company began, you know, when my friends in Toronto said, what are you doing down there? I said, well, I'm doing theater. They said, you don't want to do theater there. Why don't you come with us? We're going to New York. Some of them were going to London, right? Which you could do from Canada. And I said, no, no, I found this place. They said, God, there's no theater out there. Well, about two or three years after I had been there, I was getting requests from these very same people saying, listen, is there an opening there? Oh, Can yeah. I come out? <laughs> so it began, its reputation was growing. I remember Herb Lau introducing us to the works of Bertolt Brecht. Mm. We did the American premiere of Bertolt Brecht's Mother Courage. Wow. And this was, a, to me, a revelation I didn't know about Brecht. Right. This was a, totally new. And then Herb, at one point, had gone on some grant through Europe, and he wrote and said he'd found a play that he wanted us to do. He was going to send it, and it was called, at that time, we called Waiting for Godot. So he sent the script, and I was sitting at the office with the secretary who used to help me there and at the Marines Memorial. And one of those assistants, by the way, was the most beautiful young actress. She, she was Catherine Ross. Wow. She came to work as my secretary. And I had her, at one point, I had her in the box office selling tickets. It didn't work because there were all these guys trying to date her. <laughs> so. I had to take her out of the box office. Otherwise, we'd never sell any tickets. Anyhow, uh, so I, I uh, worked in the office, and I was sitting there when this script arrived, mm -hmm. waiting for Godot, which I there were four characters, right. right, and a boy. And so the secretary who was there, I said, why don't we read this? So we read it, and uh, I had the faintest idea of what it was I was reading, and I remember when we got to something, what's called lucky speech. <laughs> I mean, I was, it was hopeless. Yeah. I thought, well, we'll have to wait for Herb to come back to tell me what it is. 
he saw in this play, it wasn't until years later, you know, when I was fortunate enough to work with Beckham, right. that I realized it was not waiting for Godot. It was waiting for Godot. Yeah. He apparently had known um, Godot when he was in the south of France during the uh, the Second World War. He was a part of the resistance. Oh. Well, and I, well, I'd love to ask a little bit more, you know, because I know this was the period of your life that you were introduced to Beckett's work, and and you've done so much with it uh, over your career. And, you know, a lot of time there's, uh, there's the phrase, you know, being a great interpreter of Beckett's work. And I'm, and I'm curious what that means to you and what makes someone good at interpreting Beckett's work. It's, it's sort of difficult. I mean, I keep getting invitations to see various productions mm-hmm. of Beckett's work and the, and there are very few people who've done it, who I can honestly say really know, who are able to understand the rhythm mm-hmm. of, of the work. I mean, I was fortunate in that I was able to work with him over a period of 10 years, I guess. Right. Well, I know you've also directed um, his material, and, and uh, you know, that, that, yeah. that rhythm and, and musicality you talk about that maybe you innately picked up from from working with him um how do you communicate that to the other actors when you're directing of, of what what they're going for what the rhythm is oh gosh well let's see it's so difficult to sort of explain how how you do this not too long ago i saw a production i went to the kirk douglas theater to see a production of craps last tape mm-hmm I played that for a long time in in San Francisco, and I was too young really to play it. But I saw a production of it here with John Hurt, mm-hmm. who died just about a year or so ago. Yeah, and he was wonderful. He, he heard that I was coming and asked if we could meet afterwards. So we did. We had dinner afterwards, and we were talking about the play. I mean, I had worked on it in New York with uh, Hume Cronin. Mm -hmm. But now I I don't go to see many productions of Beckett's work because I find it almost a form of torture, you know, because I know how I would do it and how Beckett might do it. But that doesn't mean that that's the only way these things can be done, you know. Right. There are some very good actors who have their own approach to the material. When we did it at San Quentin, mm-hmm. I'd gotten a call from the prison one day in the office saying that all the variety shows in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, were approached and asked to come and entertain the inmates for one performance in the big dining hall of whatever musical comedy things they were doing. The shows at the various venues mm-hmm. in San Francisco, the Hungry Eye, the Purple Onion, and so on, and other other places that had variety shows, and they they would do it. And the prison eventually got a call. the The warden got a call from some of the inmates saying, "You know, you do all these wonderful variety shows once a year. Couldn't we have a play?" And so uh, they finally agreed to that. And I got a phone call saying from the prison 
saying that, uh, telling me that the inmates were interested in having a play. Would we be interested in doing one? Hmm. So I, I, I got in touch with Herb and Jules, and, and they, they said they were busy at San Francisco State teaching full courses, and they said, yeah, we'll take care of it. Uh, make it happen. Right. I got back to the prison. I said, yes. I said, we, we would be interested. I'd never been to a prison, so I didn't know. Right. Wow. I'd love to go to San Quentin or Alcatraz, which you could see in the distance. Mm -hmm. I said, yeah, we, we'd be interested in doing that. They said, wonderful. And they said, if you haven't played it, we can't have any women in it. Oh, sure. Yeah. There are no, no women in the prison, you know, and uh, you can't have a scenery, a lot of scenery changes. And I said, oh, well, we, we have this one play. There are four men and a boy. Then not much scenery. I said, no, no, a couple of rocks, you know. <laughs> so uh, they said, oh, it sounds fine. So I, I talked to George Poultney. He was like the equity representative and when he wasn't, there weren't that many equity actors in the Bay Area then. Mm -hmm. He was busy transporting prisoners from one prison to another. And so he was the person I began dealing with at San Quentin. And uh, about three or four days later, I got a call from the prison saying they didn't think this was going to work. And I said, oh, really? Why? And they said, well, some of our people went over and saw your production. We were doing it, you know two nights a week. Okay. They came and saw the production and uh, they, they didn't understand anything that was going on on that stage. And if they didn't understand it, well, you can be sure the inmates would. So <laughs> we, we don't think that's the one. And so I said, really? Well, let me get back to you. So I called Herb and Jules and Herb said, well, maybe see if you can set up a, a meeting with me and the, and the warden. And so I said, okay. So I called the warden and, and I set up a meeting with Herb Lau and the warden. And Herb explained the play to the warden as best as he could, you know, and told him mm -hmm. why it was, would be a meaningful play to do there. And the warden said to him, all right. He said, I'll, I'll let you do it. He said, but I'm telling you, if they don't like you, they're going to let you know. And there's nothing we can do. They're already here. Right. <laughs> so uh, that's, we went over and we, we did the play. And I always remember they were checking the rope, which is around Le Lucky's neck. And they had a couple of guards guarding that rope. Wow. And when you got to the prison, we were told not to, I think we were told not to wear blue jeans because that's what all the prisoners were wearing and their blue work shirts. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And we would go in, you got, got by the gates, and two people would go down this, looks like a cattle run, down the run to the other gate. One gate would close behind you, and then the other one would open, and you'd be out on a promontory, uh, a mound, just inside the prison walls. Wow. So until we all got together there, right? And uh, then we were taken into the music hall to perform. Our set designer was Robin Wagner. Mm -hmm. He designed a chorus line and a lot of other major shows later on. So he had designed whatever we were going to work on at the prison. And um, I always remember there was a prison 
band, like a jazz band right. that played as the inmates came in. And um, Herb Lau came down and talked to the audience and said, you know, that the play was was like this jazz band. There was a theme that runs through it, and there were riffs off a theme, and it came back to the, the main theme. Mm-hmm. You know, generally, he said, so that it was pretty much what he told them. That was the essence of what he told the, the audience. Right. And the play really resonated with the prisoners, right? They they really enjoyed it. Oh yes, yes, yes. And at the end of Lucky's speech, I mean, the place went wild. I mean, it was huh. like like nothing I'd ever experienced in the theater. And uh, it cheers. I mean, it was extraordinary. And uh, it, later on, when they wrote a review. Maybe you can track it down. It was in the San Quentin News. Mm-hmm. And Becca thought it was one of the best reviews of his wow. work that he had read. Wow. Well, you know, it's it's funny. It's about 10 years earlier before uh, Johnny Cash did his concert at Folsom Prison. But it sounds like you guys right. had, had a very similar uh, raucous experience uh, with the prisoners doing uh, Waiting for Gatto, which is which is really, really funny. Just so... Two totally different yeah. um, entertainment styles and, and both very well received. <laughs> right. Well, as the prisoner said, they understood what waiting was all about. Yes. Yeah. So that's why it resonated. So, yeah. And after that, they would talk, they would call each other Pozzo, and <laughs> Pozzo was the warden. Okay. And they were Go Go and Dee Dee, and Lucky was the guy on death row. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Yes, sometime after that, the inmates went to uh, the the warden and asked if they could have a theater group. Could they do their own plays and so on? And uh, he thought that they were looking for ways to goof off. So he eventually agreed to let them do it, but he gave them times that meant that they would have to give up their movie nights at the prison. Hmm or other special events, they you know, some sports thing they would have to give up right. if they want to do this theater, which they agreed to do. And one day I got a call as telling me that they were going to be doing Waiting for Godot. And would I other people like to come and see it? Well, Herb and Jules didn't. They were busy with their teaching assignments and Running the theater, I was doing that, but I said I would come, and so I, I went. And because uh, I was watching their production, they were suddenly, in a short while, in Act Two. Hmm. And I thought, oh my God, it's going to be over very soon. <laughs> and they were back in Act One. <laughs> and they kept going back and forth. And so it was a very confusing thing to see. I thought they were they were doing the best that they could do. And when I spoke to them afterwards, they said, well, the only script they could find was in theater arts magazine mm-hmm. who had printed a play every month and they printed waiting for Gago and they bound it incorrectly. Oh, geez. <laughs> so that's what they did. You see? Right. So I told them, I said, look, if you need scripts, you, you tell me, I mean, I, the theater, I'll get your scripts or you want props, whatever you want. I'm, willing to help. Oh, wow. That's great. And so a couple of days later, I got a call from the associate warden, I guess. 
And he said, you said you would be willing to help. Were you serious? Because a lot of people say they, you know, will help and they never do. And I said, no, no, I really meant it. I mean, will you tell me how I can help? And they said, would you be willing to come over and meet with the inmates who are part of this theater group? And so I said, sure. So they sent someone over who works at the prison, this prison guard, who drew, I didn't drive at the time. So he drove me over and I met with them to find out what it was they really wanted. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I said that I could help him. We could, you know, begin working on scenes from different plays, you know, two characters working on scenes and then working on a play. And we would start by reading it and casting it. This is how that is done and so on. Right. That seemed to please them. So I began doing that once a week. Wow. Monday was a dark day. So they would send someone to pick me up and bring me over. And I would work with them on the plays that we did. You know, like, uh, I remember O'Neill's, um, the the one in the bar. Oh, uh, the Iceman Cometh. The Iceman Cometh, yes. I, I remember we sat down. I had to write out all the women's parts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, right. Which was fine with, with them. So we did that, and I remember, you know, as we were going casting. I was working with all the inmates, and we had had this one guy who was going to do the lead. And someone said to me, "Oh, he'd be wonderful. You know, he's here because he stabbed his wife to death." Oh, jeez. Which is what happens in the play, you right? Know? Anyhow, I, I said, "Oh God, no! I don't think I." I and work with someone like I mean I wouldn't know what to tell him, you know. Yeah. yeah. And he kept saying, "Oh, I, I, I'll be very good for this, you know, because I, I know how what happened when when I stabbed her." And I said, I, there, "There was another part that he could do it." Right. And so I cast the young guy who was like the leader of that that group, whose name was Rick Clucci, mm-hmm. and Rick who had not attended the production of Godot that we did. He was uh, in a lockdown at that time, eventually. And so he heard the play Mm -hmm. and it had a profound effect on him. And he was worked uh, with the other inmates to create this theater company within the prison. Wow. I bring over a costume designer who talked about what they did and how they did it. I bring over a set designer a fight choreographer and so on. So I'd bring various people over to talk to them and then I would work on them with scenes. I would assign scenes uh, to to all of them. And and so we did a, as much work as we could. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That, it's, that's all really extraordinary. Um, I'm wondering if you had mentioned you had a copy of The Lucky Speech with Beckett's notes, and I'm wondering if, if you wanted to talk about that speech and what you learned about it or how you approached it or what helped you learn it and, and figure out what, what's going on there. Cause I know you said when you first read the play in San Francisco, you, you were, you know, you had really no idea what was going on. That's right. It wasn't, but it was oh a long time after that. I mean, Herb Blau was really uh, instrumental in my understanding. Mm-hmm. A lot of, of Beckett and Chekhov. I, I mean, he was, Herb Lau, I think Beckett once referred to him as overpoweringly intellectual. Hmm. So he had me walking around Herb Lau did, 
And uh, he and Jules Irving, who were both professors at San Francisco State College, mm-hmm. had me and uh, Jules' wife, Priscilla Pointer, we, we carried dictionaries with us, and we would write down words that these two professors would use that we'd never used ourselves to find out what they meant. Blau was uh, relentless in that. He always said he'd never use the same word twice if he could find another word that meant the same thing. <laughs> so uh, I, I was constantly challenged. But if you wanted to really understand Beckett or Chekhov, Shakespeare, and any of the contemporary, the new playwrights coming along at that time, uh, Herb Lau would would explain it to you. Hmm. Wow. Yes, he he was quite something. And uh, when uh, I I finally did work on a lucky speech, Mm -hmm. Beckett had sent me the speech, and as I say, it starts, you know, given the existence as uttered forth in the public works of Puncher and Watman of a personal God, qua, 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 qua. The qua, 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 as he wrote opposite that, is the first shock Hmm. that comes to Lucky. And then the first section, which he called which begins with who from the heights of divine apathia, divine apathia, divine aphasia, loves us dearly, with some exceptions, called that an indifferent heaven. Hmm. And the second one was dwindling man, and also shock. And Pozzo becomes increasingly unhappy during that dwindling man section. Vladimir and Estragon revive interest. Uh, they have become, of course, disinterested in hearing all of this. I suppose mm-hmm. it was how I was when I first heard the speech. <laughs> then they have a revived interest, beginning with physical culture, the practice of sports, such as tennis, football, running, cycling, swimming, flying, floating, etc., etc., etc. At the bottom of that, he has Stress all research tandems. That's the second part. And the third part, beginning with, in light of the labor's loss of Steinweg and Peterman, beginning just before that, he calls that the earth a wilderness hmm. in that section. So, I mean, it made it easy for me to, to finally learn the speech when it was broken down into those sections and sections that I understood. And there was more, of course, in my, you know, discussions with Beckett. Right. About doing that. Uh, later on, so three, four years ago, when I did Waiting for Godot at uh, the Mark Taper Forum. Right. I played Estragon. And um, I, I was just so comfortable with the language and the poetry of the piece and uh, understanding the characters. And Barry McGovern, who's a wonderful actor, we played opposite each other. Mm -hmm. We worked extraordinarily well together. I mean, it was like you could 
fall over, but he would be there to catch you. Well, yeah, I'm curious about working with Barry. Did you guys find you approached the material very similarly, or or what was that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very similarly. And so later on, when I did Endgame, mm -hmm. uh, I directed, I said I would only do it if Barry had agreed, would agree to come over from Dublin mm. to do it, and it, which, which he did. It was important for me. I mean, we were like two halves of a whole, and uh, we worked uh, extremely well together. I mean, there was the kind of musicality and poetry and so on. It was just there. It was not something you had to search for or focus on. It, two actors who understood that writer mm -hmm. understood each other. Total trust. Yeah, I, it does sound uh, pretty amazing to have that experience with another actor on stage. I guess what I'm I'm curious about in and, and you you know you you know mentioned working at the Mark Taper Forum and yeah. you had worked so much in New York and then you made the transition out to Los Angeles. Uh I was curious how you so to speak ingratiated yourself into Southern California theater. You know, how did you how did you break in to starting to work more in 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 this region? Well, because what happened when I I left New York, I, I just had had enough, I said, of, you know, running uh, the company and acting and doing everything, uh, you know, 16 hours a day, seven right. days a week. I just said I'd had enough. It was like, like nine years total. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jules Irving had decided to leave. I thought I didn't want to be there anymore. And, and in fact, at one point, Joe Papp approached me and asked me what my plans were and uh i said well i'm i'm going to take a vacation first he said why what do you do <laughs> i said i don't do anything and i walked away i wasn't about to go to work with joe pap mm -hmm. either but i said i would be there to show him what there was in the theater uh where all the props were uh, all the information on any aspect of the theater before I left. And uh, when we had taken a production of A Streetcar Named Desire, which we did on Broadway with Lois Nettleton, mm -hmm. I was an associate producer along with uh, Jules directed that production, which was, you can look it up, I think the reviews were very, very good. We were invited to bring it to the Kennedy Center following that run, and we did, and that's when Jules left, and, and I was left in Washington, D.C. with the, the production. I said, what am I supposed to do? He said, well, you look after everything, and he left and went out to uh, Los Angeles, where his brother was a producer at Universal. Mm-hmm. So he went out to do uh, films. I spent quite a bit of time getting things put together. I mean, with the production, moving the production back to uh, New York, uh, came back to New York and uh, began working uh, off Broadway with a couple of productions. One was uh, Robin Wagner, the scene designer, was directing the production. 
He said, would I be in? A yes. And so it was one of the leading roles. And so I was working off Broadway. And finally, one day, Jules called and said, he said, I've been offered the uh, Brooklyn Academy of Music wants me to run it. He said, you could be the general manager. And I said, I was just the general manager of Lincoln Center. Why would I want to go to Brooklyn to do the same thing? And so he would call me, you know, he offered the presidency of a university. I could be a provost. I said, I don't even know what a provost is. Thanks. I don't want to be a provost. <laughs> so uh, this went on. And one day he called and said he had a friend, uh, M. Charles Cohen, on the other line. Well, hello, M. Charles Cohen. He said, no, you can call me Max. I said, oh, all right, Max. So Jewel said, well, we're doing a three-hour television film of uh, Dark Victory. Do you want to be in it? And I said, uh, well, well what, what would I do in it? He said, do you want to be in this, yes or no? Hmm. I said, well, do, can you, can you, is this the thing that Betty Davis and Humphrey Bogart and so Yes, yes. Now, do you want to be in this? It's a three-hour production for television. Yes or no? And I said, Okay, yes. <laughs> he said, all right, Max, write him apart. And they hung up. <laughs> and that's what brought me out to Los Angeles. Wow. So I came out to do this film, which was, a, I suppose, I, I was a, a weatherman. It was supposed to be about three or four days. It turned out to be about six weeks because I think Elizabeth Montgomery had gotten ill. Hmm. Uh, Anthony Hopkins was in it. I became friendly with him. He was wonderful. What a lovely, lovely man, a wonderful actor and a marvelous human being. So I, I, I did that. And then, uh, Jules made sure that I, I wound up with an agent. And the next thing I knew I was on the $6 million man, mm -hmm. the invisible man. None of it made any real sense. I, what I cared about was the theater. And so I began looking around for theaters in LA. There was a conference held for what was to have been a Shakespearean theater halfway between LA and San Francisco. I went to that meeting with Jules, who complained all the way up to the meeting and then realized that there he was with all of his colleagues in the theater and said, you know, you're right. It's what we should be doing. We came back, we began looking around for theaters. That's about when I heard from Rick Clucci about uh, his meeting with Beckett and they were going to do Endgame. Okay. And Kravitz tape and waiting for Gatto in Europe. He wanted me to be a part of it. And I knew that's where I belonged. In the meantime, I had gotten a call from Los Angeles Actors Theater, which was on Oxford Street, mm -hmm. asking me if I would come in and meet with the director of a play they were doing. I did. It was a play about the ghetto in Lodz in Poland, which was overseen by a man named Rumkowski. Uh, but I, I remember uh, they, they finally said, would, would I do this part? So I came into the theater and um, I, I met with the directors and the actors. And I thought the director we had didn't know what he was doing. And before long, I 
was directing the piece. Wow. The the directors of the Actors Theater weren't coming around to see what was happening. Finally, one day, Diane White, who was one of the producers, said, well, you're doing everything that needs to be done, so we don't have to be there to help you. So I put together the whole production, which we did, and uh, with some degree of success, I was not the right person for this role, really. I was <laughs> I was too young. I knew what I was doing, mm-hmm. but I, I knew I was too young for the part. Anyhow, I became friendly with Bill Bushnell and Diane White, who said, you know, you, when when the show ran and I had to put in understudies and so on, I, I, I was just doing what I normally did, which run the company. So they asked me if I would come aboard. I think they said you could be a co-producer. And uh, my wife said, you don't want to be co-producer. You want to be something that gives you time to come home and spend time with your wife and children. Hmm. Yeah. So I uh, I accepted a business manager, I think, was the title that I used. Mm-hmm. And, and so I began working. They're coming in every day, working in the office, doing what any normal business manager would do, which involved fundraising and everything, right. running a theater. And so uh, that's how I began. And, and eventually after, and I began doing Beckett plays there. Mm-hmm. I think I did something at the taper at the time. I was became good friends with Gordon Davidson, whom I admired, and I just liked him personally. We were we hit it off, and so that's how I got involved in theater here. Sure, I would love to ask you a couple questions about the play Trying. Oh yeah, sure. That was actually one of the first things that I saw you in. Uh, in, in LA. Oh, really? Yes. And, uh, it was, I, I think, well, I remember going back a second time because I was just so, uh, I was just so blown away at, you know, both the, you know, the entire production, but specifically the work you were doing. And I'm curious, obviously, since you were around during the period of, of this man's, uh, Francis Biddle's professional career, I'm curious when you approached the part, did he, remind you of anyone you had grown up with or did you base him on anyone you knew i had a good time working with cameron watson who was the director right and rebecca mozo so that's really who this play involved Mm -hmm. the three of us in a very intense way and i called on whatever i knew as an actor was needed for this. I didn't know Biddle. Right. Or or I really didn't know about him, actually. It was just my training as an actor over any number of years is what I brought right. to the character. Yeah, and, and, and as you said, I mean, you're, you're there is so much to do in that show, and, and you're taking that part on when you were 80, I believe, uh, which is in and of itself quite an accomplishment. Uh, and, and there's even the speech from King John in there. So, you know, amidst everything else, yeah. there's, there's some Shakespeare mm-hmm. in there. Were, 
were you nervous about uh you know taking on such a such an intense part or or just something with so much to do no not at all okay i felt very comfortable it's it's what i do i've been in the theater really in every aspect of it all my life right and so this was another challenge and i realized it was me in a large degree just holding the stage myself but working with a director who we saw eye to eye on everything and i was able to try various things mm-hmm. you know different moves to change the we we would experiment a lot and uh, and uh, cameron watson was wonderful about that you know as was rebecca yes yeah just one of those great things that happens you know <laughs> Well, and actually speaking about directors, I know you worked with John Cameron Mitchell a couple of times on both uh, Hedwig and, and then Short Bus. And, and I was curious, what did you enjoy about working with him? That you know, What was that experience like? Well, I just finished working with him a couple of months ago. Oh, really? Uh, on a podcast, which he's editing. And in fact, um, he wrote a, a song and his uh, composer for this podcast, I think they were thinking of it maybe at first as a TV series, but then he called and said, well, we we're going to do it as a podcast. I didn't even know what a podcast was. <laughs> but he called. I said, oh, well, whatever. Okay. And so he sent me the music, a very difficult song. And I called and I said, are you out of your mind? I can't sing. But he said, you'll be just fine. <laughs> We had worked together since he came to audition for a play at the Los Angeles Theater Center downtown. Oh, wow. We were doing a, a play of, about Russians, about Chernobyl. Mm-hmm. And um, he called for a young a young actor, somewhere around 16 or 17. And I was there throughout the auditions. And uh, several people had come in, and then John Cameron Mitchell came in and auditioned, and somebody said, oh, no, he can't use it. He's too young. He looked about 16, you know. I said, he's perfect. They said, no, 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 not him. I said, I'm telling you, you don't use him, I'm leaving this company. (laughs) That's how strongly I thought he did. So they hired him. And then they couldn't stop using him in the company. He was in several productions after that. Mm. Um, and uh, we just maintained, maintained a great friendship. Uh, another young writer that I worked with at the same time was John Robin Bates. Mm-hmm. But John Cameron Mitchell, I mean, we were friends from then on. He came to me when he showed me that he was writing this sketch, which ultimately became Hedwig. Mm-hmm. He was doing it at this rundown hotel in New York. Anyhow, I went to a rehearsal with a director, and I said, you tell me what you need. You know, what is it? You need money? You need a better place to, re- whatever you, tell me what you need, and I'll see that you get it. So uh, that's how our friendship began. And, of course, Hedwig turned out to be quite a success. Right. 
And when he did the film, he said, oh, you have to be in the film. I said, this is nothing. He said, I'll have something for you. So I I went up to Toronto where it was being filmed. And I thought, well, I could see my family up there, right? Sure. And so uh, I, I got on the set and they ushered me into the star trailer. And I'm sure all the other extras must have been wondering, who the hell is this guy? I mean, I, I had uh, John Cameron Mitchell's star trailer before what I had to do in that. And there's a scene that takes place in the restaurant, mm-hmm. and he's standing on a table over this old guy, and I'm wearing glasses and so on, and he's got his little fringe skirt going up against my glasses as he moving his posterior right um back and forth and he says that's what we call a car wash <laughs> and so that i became known as the car wash right so that when I, one day was when i went to see it in new york i mean he had me you know he said please i'm opening you know on broadway or also wherever it was i i was always there mm-hmm. and so i went i went to the opening and uh I remember afterwards, I'm leaving the theater, and there were, there were a couple of hundred people out front singing the songs from Hedwig. Um, and as I, I was walked down the street, I kept hearing, no, that's him, that's him. And they came running after me, and they said, you, you were the car walk. <laughs> I, I was stunned. I thought, turned out that they had memorized not all the songs, all the time. They knew that. These were Hedwig what, uh, aficionados. Right. Followed everything to do with that play. And of course, it's to this day, it's still a success. Right. The podcast, by the way, I, I did this song, and it's the hardest song I've ever had to learn. Uh, and the other people singing are Patti Lapone, Wow. Glenn Close, and Marion Cotillard. Wow. Quite quite a good company to be in. I thought, oh, yes. Well, I didn't <laughs> see them. I mean, right. they had me recorded separately. Right. right. I would love to just ask a few more short questions to kind of yeah. wrap up our time here. So many actors, I think, uh, with their training, uh, will come out of college and feel the business side of being an actor is really lacking from their education. And did you feel like you had an advantage because of all of the general management and business work you had been doing? Did that feel like you knew more about that side of being an actor? Well, that's part of it. But I was was telling one other young actor, you know, that the theater is is a whole, there's a whole world. It's not just actors. You should know something about lighting design, about set design, about stage management, about writing. Mm. Writing. I tell young actors, don't worry about becoming buddy-buddy with the the other actors. Find out who's doing the writing. (laughs) That's where, you know, all the work. Yes. So, I I mean, I I didn't go to college. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I felt honored when I finally lectured at Yale and Columbia and Oxford and so on. But I was a, uh, I didn't finish high school. I mean, I was, 
expelled from high school in my was it third year, came back for the fourth year. This was in Canada. Mm-hmm. He went for five years to high school, right? I managed to make it partway through the fourth year, and finally, this wasn't for me. All I ever wanted to do was to be involved in the theater. Either I learned how to run one, to act, direct, teach, sew costumes, make costumes, learn about theater design, scenery design, lighting design. I mean, who are all of these people who make theater what it really is? It's not just the actors Mm. who get most of the praise. It's all these other artists. They are really artists. If I do a play, direct a play, which I'm thinking of, uh, I would want to work again with John Iacobelli. I mean, he's a scenic artist. Yeah. The best. And the same, you know, with costume design and raw. I mean, there's nobody better. She, <laughs> I'm surprised that she hasn't opened a shop. Know, with her designing clothes, she's one of the great designers. So it was for me important, you know, to work with the, in the theater with the very, very best. And if I knew something about design, then I would know who the designers were. And if I was going to do a play and I needed a set design, I knew who the best designers were. You know, sure. and that's what you have to do. It's not just about acting. I mean, yes, that's important, and you have to work hard at it, but you're not working any harder than the scene designers are. Right. You know, who are given, what, descriptions in a script and have to come up with a whole ambiance to make what you're doing work. Right. Yes, so I, I made it a point to work, and I mean, I sewed costumes. I helped with lighting design, scenery design, going out, you know, props. I mean, I don't know how many hours I spent going to various shops, finding props for shows. I learned a lot about art as a result. Right. Paintings and so on. I mean, those people are really gifted, you know. Yes. So it's, I mean, acting is part of the whole world of the theater. Right. Yeah, that's what was important to me. No, those are, I mean, and those are great points that I think uh, are not spoken about enough. So I, I really, uh, I really appreciate you bringing up that that point. It just, uh, of course, it does make a lot of sense, but I, I think it's also one of those things that unfortunately gets overlooked. Yes. Oh, it, yes, it certainly does, and it's the same. You know. Yeah. Absolutely, because you're right. Uh, all of these other people are are such great artists in their own right, and uh, are, are absolutely yes. Well, I, another short question I have is: the term success can give a lot of people challenges, and and sure. you know what does what does success mean? And so I, I'm curious how how did you define that for yourself? What what did success mean to you? And and maybe even if it's changed, what does it mean to you now? I suppose what it meant was that I was working and never stopped working. Um, I'm about to be 91. 
and I'm I have another project coming up. So uh, maybe two. I mean, so that's what I feel is success. You know, is that you're able to do whatever it is you love doing, mm. and to be. <laughs> paid for it in many ways. I mean, by an accepting audience, uh, by other artists who are happy to collaborate with you, by being paid for your work. And um, I mean, I don't know what really what retirement is. (laughs) So as I say, that success is having people calling and say, we need you, we've got this project and you'd be perfect for it. Uh, Or we need your help for this project, you know, or, or building a theater. We've decided we want our own theater and uh, we, we need some advice on how to do it, you know, how to put together a board, you know, what is the function of the board? And that's terribly important, the board of the theater. I mean, all of those it's a whole world. The theater is not just an actor on the boards. Right. Well, Alan, I, I want to thank you so much uh, for your time. It's been such a, an honor to speak with you as someone that uh, I've, I've admired for many years uh, from afar, watching you on, on stage or screen. It, it, it really means a lot that you uh, were able to take some time to, to chat today. Well, I, I say I've got some young people who I've been helping, you know, with with their careers. I have a granddaughter. Mm-hmm. I think is going to have a career. She wants a career in the theater, and so we were able to talk about that. And then, so I'm I'm available to young people who show some interest and talent in the theater to explain to them that the theater is not just a script. You don't know who wrote it, really, but learning lines and getting up there and emoting. It's more than that. It's this whole world that we've just been talking about. Yeah. And I can only imagine that that has been, uh, I would imagine it's been very rewarding uh, to to pass this along and to share that with uh, the next uh, generation, future generation oh, yeah. of theater artists. Yes, yes. It's, I, I feel so gratified and I can help some younger people. Well, great. Okay. All right. <laughs> Thanks so much, Alan. Thank you. Hey, guys. Nathan here one more time. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe so you don't miss anything ahead. Be sure to visit WorkingActorsJourney.com for additional info and links for items mentioned in today's episode, as well as all the episodes. You can follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. All the links are on our site and in the episode notes. Become a premium member and enjoy additional benefits and perks of the show starting at just $2 per month. Head over to WorkingActorsJourney.com slash premium to join the Working Actors community. And don't forget to claim your free audiobook at WorkingActorsJourney.com slash audible. Thanks again to today's guest and to everyone that makes these episodes possible. And a special thanks to you for listening. I'm Nathan Agan, and enjoy the journey.